I call it two. And, um, uh, okay. Um, okay. Do you want to do the sinking clap? Right, okay. If you hear crunching noises, I'm eating. Uh, starting the record. Mm-hmm. In, uh, three, two, one. Okay, on my end. Three, two, one. Cool. Well, it's been a couple of weeks, hasn't it? Um, I think that is... Yeah, it's been two weeks because mm. you were on a ship... I was on a boat, yes. Yeah, uh, you were on a boat a last much week. Needed, it was a much-needed mental health and physical health break, I think. <laughs> how, yeah. how is it? I, I mean, I'm curious about I've never been on a cruise. Well, I mean, it, it's, you just, you know, it's like a hotel, but uh, with frequent rocking motion and uh, buffet meals for lunch and breakfast. And then dinner is like a gourmet thing. Right. It's not bad. I mean, the for the price, it was fairly reasonable. It's about $500 odd for... No, no. I mean, if you add things on, it's about $600 plus plus for like mm-hmm. uh, four nights at sea. Okay. Food all-inclusive. Uh, pretty bloody good deal, like, if you ask me. That's actually really good, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... I mean, if I, you don't want to pay for the... I mean, I had to pay like 100 bucks for internet, which is part of that $600, but, you know, it's... it's right. Like, yeah. Right, you know, because I, I had, I still, I mean, much as I called it a work break, I still had to work while I was on that break. I was doing, you know, uh, Zoom calls and all that rubbish and classes yeah. as well. I mean, it it strikes me that in a remote work environment, you never really get to, you never really. Uh, I mean, it's it's a cliche, right? At this point, that if you're you know working remotely, then you never disconnect because. There's no yep. separation of work and life and, and all that stuff. But I and add think... a PhD to that, right? You know, there, there's <laughs> this there's this famous saying that you know uh, I, I I didn't want to 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 uh, work a nine to five job, so I ended up doing a PhD. Uh, 20, and now I work Twenty four hours. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, but I think it is true that where in the past, right, you could say, okay, I am going on vacation. Right, mm-hmm. and you physically remove yourself from your work environment for X number of days, and that also yep. means that people know not to contact you. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, well, I mean, today people still know not to contact you when you're on vacation, but they don't respect it. That's true. They know, but <laughs> they don't give a That's shit. That's true. Yeah, I, I think. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about this, and I think there is also um, the kind of work expectation that because so much communication is asynchronous anyway right in the sense of well i'm just gonna send you an email i know you are on vacation but you don't have to read it but does that actually ever happen Mm, right i mean the phone is ubiquitous these days and that really has changed the way everyone works right for worse i think the thing is (laughs) when business used to be conducted by like you know fax or phone Mm -hmm then there is really the expectation that, okay, I know the person I'm communicating with is not available at the moment. Yes. Uh, therefore, I won't call or therefore I won't expect the facts to be dealt with immediately. Right. right. Yes. But when it's email, you are you still oh, have this boy. same mentality of, well, 
they're on vacation, they shouldn't check their email. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. No. no. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it was good though. I mean, it wasn't really much needed. I, I was in the middle of a, a rather major uh, uh, skin outbreak. So it was, you know. Right, yeah. Uh, it was, I think, really a much needed health uh, health retreat. And, and I, you know, I did come back slightly refreshed. Although, you know, the thing about being on a boat for multiple days, not even just multiple days, but this is in my general experience. I don't know whether other people experience this, but it certainly does affect me. It's that you have the sea legs and uh, it takes some time to adjust back to being on dry land. Yes, I have so, heard of this. And yes. I've never really been on a boat for extended periods of time, but the one place where I remember experiencing this was um, Tioman. Okay, yeah, Right? Because right. we had a school trip a to school trip, Pulau yeah. Tioman. Yeah. And then we were... I am trying to remember this. We were... Were we on a boat? We were on a boat for the whole day. Literally the whole day. From dawn to dusk. Right. Fact. Yeah, yeah. And because so, we sailed, so we no, we we was it? No, it wasn't the whole day. It was half a day. We hiked from uh, uh from Paya Beach uh-huh. to uh, uh, is it Jerial or whatever it's called on the other side of Tioban, right? We we, yeah. we 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 hiked across that little, little sort of hilly range, yeah. And then we took a boat around the entire uh, half the entirety of right, Tioban, right, right, the southern extent. So that was yeah. a half day uh, a boat ride, yeah, which and was then, quite fun. I thought, yeah, and then that that night. Right when I was in bed and looking at the ceiling, then it felt like the room was shaking because what you're did just it? for me at you least. You see, that's that's not my experience with the sea uh-huh. legs. So I mean, uh-huh. I've experienced this. I think I don't recall experiencing this with Tioman, but I uh-huh. I, I definitely recall uh, the most vivid experience I had of this was in uh, Japan because okay. I took a boat. Uh, I took the ferry out to the um, to the Izu Islands. So this is Miyakajima. Uh-huh. Uh, so, so, so if you if you know where Tokyo is, right, there is a bay that uh-huh. surrounds Tokyo. Mm-hmm. Once you exit that bay, you're in the Pacific Ocean. Oh, right. Okay. Right, and there is a chain of volcanic islands that leads out from uh, Tokyo Bay uh, out into the Pacific, and this is called these are called the uh, the uh, uh, well the uh, what's it called now the Izu Islands, right? That's okay. Like Oshima, Miyakejima, Haha, not Hajima, um, uh, f- several volcanic islands. If you play Pokemon. Uh, the Sevi Islands and Cinnabar Island are inspired by this by, by this island chain. Right. So I okay. I visited the Sevi Islands basically. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I um, am putting that in the show notes. Yes, and so the 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 fun thing, I mean, obviously the reason why I went there is not because uh, you know of any particular uh, me being particularly cultured, it's because there's birds there. So um, <laughs> <sighs> yep. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm nothing if not predictable, right? And and so, uh, um, uh, it's it's a, it's a really fun journey, and it's I think it's a really underrated part of Japan that more tourists should see, right? Mm-hmm. So what you do is you get on the the, the boat. And it's a big boat. It's one of those huge ferries, um, uh, and it departs uh, 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 Sabigaha. Is it? Uh, uh, well, it departs Tokyo Harbor at 10 p.m. at night. Okay, you sail through the night. There are no beds on this boat. It's just, you know, tatami-style carpet floor. You sleep on the floor. Okay. You have a little bay to yourself with a little charging point, and then you just sleep on the floor. Um, and then at 5 a.m., they arrive at Miyakejima. And so you get off the boat at 5 a.m. It's still dark. Um, you get onto a shuttle bus, 
and the shuttle bus basically goes around the island. So if you know hello, you drop hello, off wherever I you cannot drop hear off. You. And s- okay, I think you dropped oh. off for a bit. Did I drop off a bit? Sorry. Yeah. I did drop off a bit. My internet is, is dumb. Anyway, <laughs> so you get you you where, where do you last? Uh, so you get off the boat at five a.m. Right. Yep. There will be a a bus service waiting. Uh, I think you pay like a small fee, like a you know a few few yen. And the bus basically goes around the island. Uh, there's several stops. And so what I did was I dropped off at the nature center. When we got there, uh, I was there with uh, with uh, with someone I met in Japan, uh, this old German microbiology professor who also likes birds. Okay. Um, it was it was a weird trip. Anyway, um, and uh, yeah, so we sat there, you know, in darkness. Uh, had our our breakfast, which is basically Seven uh, Eleven. You know stuff <laughs> uh, until okay. about yeah you know we bought the the little rice balls from Seven Eleven which is you know I guess it's what sustained us for more or less the whole day <laughs> um, yeah and so we sat there in darkness at five a.m. until it got a little bit brighter around six thirty right. and then we walked into the nature center did our you know our 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 bird stuff <laughs> uh-huh. uh, got some interesting birds. Right, and then the real fun was the trip back. So it was basically the the boat arrives back at so the boat goes out from Tokyo, right? Mm-hmm. Stops off at Miyakajima, and then mm-hmm. it goes all the way out to the furthest island, and it turns around, right, and comes back, right. So what we did was we stopped off at Miyakajima at five, and the boat arrives back at Miyakajima at noon on the same day. So we had right. that, uh, uh, you know, uh, what seven hour window to get the birds we needed. Uh-huh. And then we go, uh, went, we rushed back to the harbor, got back on the same boat. And then from 12 noon to 8 p.m., you are on the open sea. And that is when the fun begins. Because that, right. uh, the reason why bird watchers take this trip, aside from the, the sort of the, the small birds that live on these you know, remote islands, it's the sea passage back to Tokyo. That's where right. you get all these seabirds out in the open because it's uh-huh. like albatrosses and shear right. waters and storm petrels and even right. uh, potentially uh, puffin relatives like uh, a Japanese auklet as well. It's a remarkable journey, but you are on the open ocean, right? You mm-hmm. are basically on that, that little fringe of that little shelf of the Pacific Ocean. And the best uh, weather for seabird watching is when it's windy, which means that there are waves. And so the right. boat is heaving ever so perceptibly uh, for that entire eight-hour journey back. So imagine standing on the deck of this vessel, right? Uh-huh. This enormous vessel. It's not cruise ship size, but it's you know like a oil 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 tanker size vessel. Okay, I would say, right? Medium size oil tanker vessel, uh, and and you're on the deck for at a good five of the eight hours. Uh, of the entire journey, and you're just running back and forth, you know, uh, uh, starboard to starboard to to port, port to starboard, yeah, port to starboard, just looking for albatrosses and 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 passing seabirds. Right. And so, by the time I got back to Tokyo Harbor, it was eight p.m., and for the whole night, I could feel my feet just going up and down and up <laughs> and down. I thought it was a bloody earthquake happening, right? Yeah. <laughs> So that yeah. was that was my experience in Japan, and and so getting back, you know, I, at least it wasn't so severe as, as as that. But uh, getting back from this recent trip, you know, you could I could still feel sort of the, the floor sort of gently rocking below my feet, mm-hmm. uh, even though you know, for all, as as far as I could tell, the floor was quite solid. Right, right. I'm thinking. I mean, the 
it's a very strange thing because um, obviously today, right, we... Okay, this is a weird way to say it, right? I think, like, in the past, we, we think of, like, piracy, for example, and, like, mm-hmm. the idea of, you know, like, people who sail versus people who don't um, as, like, the... In in I think in in the popular imagination that distinction doesn't loom quite as large um, as it used to. I think just the effect of modern life, right? Which is things like you know boats are faster, and right? So even for people who are professional sailors, they're not at sea quite as long, right? Well, Whereas uh, depends. I think it really depends. I mean, if you are doing like cargo transport, it can be a substantial amount of time, right? Yeah, I mean, I think. Um, That's true, but I, I realize I'm like Antarctic research or something. You will Antarctic research is, is is its own it's its own thing. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm thinking <laughs> because I'm I'm kind of um, hesitant here because the thing is, I this is a, a very much a case of I don't even know what I don't know right because <laughs> right yeah because like I don't really spend my time thinking about like you know naval culture or sure. or or anything like that. Um, but it is a very like it is a totally different world, right? It really the, is. It absolutely is. Yeah the the whole idea of making a living at sea, mm-hmm. right? Um, and every now and then, like I'll read in the newspapers about about. I I think I sent you this article about the abandoned ship, um, yep. off yep. the off coast Dubai, of Dubai. Is it? Um, well, off the coast of UAE, it's actually not the UAE, Dubai. Right? I think it's it's mm. one of the other Emirates. Yeah. It's cl- technically closer to, um, but it's one of those areas where things are done by convention, mm-hmm. right? And they don't really um, there. There's a lot of haziness about it, so. For example, what happens when, um, I, I guess the, the the broadest question is when a ship is in international waters, what jurisdiction is it under, right? Yeah, yeah. Or if something untoward happens on a on a boat yeah. in international waters, what Correct. governs so it? So I'm I mean like right now the thing that's all over the news is the case of the Spanish cows. The case. You, have you? Have I, you? I bet you what? No, have you I've been. Oh, I've been so bogged down with been... work that this clearly has has slipped my mind. What what on earth? Let I mean, me find this. What Arthur Conan Doyle story is this? Okay, so I'm gonna put this in Do the show I notes. Do I want to know? <laughs> I'm gonna put this in the show notes. Basically, um, a bunch of cows were yes. shipped from Spain um, yes. towards uh, I don't even remember where exactly. Okay, but basically, a Spanish company <laughs> sold a bunch of cows. Straight. Yeah, they sold a bunch of cows, oh, and wow. they were put on a boat. And As so, because the the company sold the cows, right? The company that sold the cows say the cows are no longer our problem. Yes. The company that bought the cows, um, I, well, I don't know what happened to that basically, but the the boat has been you know, chugging along the Mediterranean and at every port it's been turned away because the 
cows may have blue tongue. Oh, and geez. yep, and the Spanish say there's no blue tongue on the on on the farms where these cows came from. So I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> they will not accept the cows back. No port will accept the cows because they may have blue tongue. Right. And now the cows have been out at sea for two months. Jeez. Louise. And obviously, when you put 800 cows on a boat for two months, um, <laughs> you know, and they're not very well provisioned, right? There are stories. No, that, they're not. Yeah, there are stories about how these cows may have gone several days without food. Um, and also like 22 cows died on board Mm -hmm. and 20 of them were just supposedly chopped up and thrown overboard. (sighs) Yep. What a um, story. Good Lord. Yeah. And the other two cows are just, they're still dead and on the boat. Uh, Yes. Yeah. And it's... How did I miss this story? Yeah. Uh, Anyway. I've been well into these craziness, yeah, and so they're just, they're just, um, they're just floating around the Mediterranean, trying to figure out what to do with the cows. <laughs> right. Yeah. Huh. I mean, you think you know, seafaring culture has been with us for such a long time. We would have figured out solutions to this by now, surely. Evidently not. Yeah. Uh, clearly not. Yeah, but you know, well, so yeah, so you know, being on the boat isn't. I mean, it. it, it Okay, I I mean, let's be fair. I could have settled for a hotel. (laughs) I could have settled for a traditional staycation in a hotel. But it doesn't feel like you're leaving the country. And it feels almost like, you know, if I'm stepping out of my room and I'm, you know, still on mainland Singapore, I feel obligated to go to work. That's interesting. Okay. Right? I mean, do you not feel that way? I I feel like, you know, I'm going to be going through at least my usual routine of going to certain places and feeling like I'm working or commute, commuting. That you know, is I, I, a good question because so far, I've, I've done, I think, two staycations in the last year or so. Right. Um, one of them actually overlapped with the workday. Mm, right. Because what, what happened was, okay, what, what happened was... Um, my sister graduated in 2019. Mm-hmm. My whole family went to Germany, right, to kind yep. of help her move out. And there we did a Euro tour, basically. Mm-hmm. And all of those hotel bookings were done on hotels.com. <laughs> and they have a rebate program. Yeah. But <laughs> the hotel rebate has to be used within like a year or something. Mm-hmm. Six months? I can't yeah, remember. Yeah, yeah. They yeah. have fairly draconian terms for expiration. Well, I mean, it, it's like a, it's essentially a, about a 10% rebate, so, mm. which is big. It is a fairly yeah, substantial. It's yeah. very substantial, yeah. And so we decided to book a, um, a staycation mm-hmm. um, just to use up the, the rebate. But because this was not a vacation vacation, right? This is just we have these free hotel nights that we should use. Yes. It was not very convenient to actually say, okay, I'm taking leave and mm-hmm. don't bother me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. And because it was a three night thing, um, I ended up on, I, I think I took it as 
like Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Sure. Yep. And so Monday morning, I was in the hotel at work. <laughs> oh, God. And then over the lunch hour, yeah, over lunch hour, I hopped into a cab. And oh, I... No. Yeah, and I went home. Okay. And I continued so, working I mean, at home. Yeah. Right. So, you see, I mean, you know, this, this as a concept, this would work in other countries because other countries are, are big, right? I have colleagues right. who can say, oh, you know what? I'm taking a break. I'm going to Texas. <laughs> yeah. And they go to Texas, you know. We can't do that. <laughs> right, right. And so the, the entire concept of a staycation kind of loses, I think, a lot of its um, uh, uh, value, at, at least insofar as my conception of what a, a, a vacation should be, I... um, just purely I... driven by our geographical constraints. I'm, I'm curious about the, well, the geographical distribution, right, of the concept of mm-hmm. a staycation, which is just another way of mm-hmm. saying it's a very academic and full intellectual <laughs> way of saying, I wonder how many countries even have this concept of a staycation. Well, I mean, it's it's certainly become a, con- a much broader concept now because of the whole, you know, everything. But uh, yeah, I, I wonder when it originated and, and how, you know, yeah, how it's the concept as, as a whole has spread. Uh, because in... Yeah. Well, the thing is, I, I think at a minimum, right, when you do a staycation, the rule has to be you didn't leave your city. Mm. Oh, that's true. That's right. fair. Because yeah, that's a fair point. Because any other kind of vacation will involve some degree of travel, mm. You're whether right. or not yeah, that's yeah, yeah. inside or outside the city um, that you live in, or the place that you live in, assuming it's not a city. But then, hmm. that's, yeah. So I, maybe long story short, I, mean, I just don't like the idea of a staycation. <laughs> <laughs> just right. vehemently opposed to this notion that, you know, you can switch off from whatever it is you're doing while not actually physically leaving a geographical space that you are familiar with. I think for me, the staycation idea, when I've, when I've been on staycations, right, the thing that I've looked forward to has been doing personal work as opposed to professional work, right? You're kind of like, okay, I'm going to be on, you know, doing this vacation. I'm going to spend time, say, like, journaling or I'm going to spend time, like, you know, researching, like, personal or, like, professional growth opportunities or that kind of thing. So it's still work in the sense that you have a task list. You have a list of things you want to accomplish. They just don't pertain to your job, or they don't pertain to your current job, right? They right. So th- then like lies a, the the problem of the academic because the personal <laughs> is the professional. Yep. At least in my case. Yep. It's so like maybe a, that's why it just doesn't doesn't work for me. It's like a personal work retreat of sorts, right? right. Because let me think about yes. what most companies classify as a retreat. Um, yes. The idea of it is you take a step back from operational work. And you focus mm-hmm. on like strategic work, yeah. right? Um, yeah. And I think on a personal level, it's the same. It's still work, <laughs> but you get away from the mundane work and you start thinking about like big picture strategy right. issues. Yeah, that, that is fair. And I mean, I can see how I, I could potentially make that work in my context, but it's 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 not easy and so you know the effort of trust just trying to keep up appearances <laughs> might just not be worth it at all um, right 
So maybe it's just me. I, I just don't like this concept of a staycation. I, I need to physically change the geographical landscape of my immediate perception in order to feel like I'm, I'm you know, taking a break. I will say one thing. I won't say exactly in favor of a staycation, right? Because this right. is not a... This is not a plus or minus. It's, not, it's just a no. We're not fact. doing a pros cons sort of yeah. weighing thing. Yeah. But I think one um, curiosity, right, of a staycation, um, at least in the Singapore context, is you know that, for example, you will never be one of those people who has a condo on Orchard Road. Oh, right. Hell, those. Those. Yeah. Those. I'm gonna. Say, I'm not gonna say something. Something. Something vulgar and profane. But okay. Yes. Those people. <laughs> right. Okay. But for a few days, right, you get the advantages of being based in a very good location, and sure. you can have this mild fantasy of waking up at like eight a.m. and getting breakfast in town. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I mean, but let's face it. At eight a.m. on Orchard Road, nothing is open. Nothing is open, you're right. Um, yeah. You and, have better luck in City Road Hall, actually. Just... Because City Hall, yeah. is a is a work area, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, the, the fantasy of living living in Orchard Road, I think, is is frankly overblown. Um, I, you know, mostly... having picked up dead birds across the island, I've seen uh-huh. some... I've seen my fair share of opulent houses. And, I mean, maybe maybe it's just me growing up, but... Good lord, the amount of cleaning that these spaces require. No thank you. I mostly indulge in this fantasy when it's like 11pm and <laughs> I'm in town and then I sure. have to go home. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, would be nice to live here. I'll, and then I'll I could just walk. Like... <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but also I think, I, I also think I've been somewhat spoiled by um, having lived in lower Manhattan, mm, yes. right? Where you are really in the, you know, you're really in the center of it. It's like, you know, from yeah. MoMA back home, it's about half an hour. Yeah. yeah. Right? I, you could walk. I mean, you could almost... I could walk. You could I almost could walk. walk from Times Square home. <laughs> I, I mean, I could, but why would I? <laughs> yeah, at a reasonable take. I mean, there is the subway, unless, yeah. Right. But, you know, it's conceivable that you could just do that. But I mean, it's I kind do of actually like miss New York. From like you know, if if you go to an event in mm-hmm. uh, Union Square, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. To be able to just walk home, yeah, that's a yeah. I mean, although there is a there is a, I, I guess I wonder nice. if anyone has has computed sort of the threshold of walking um, niceness, you know, the distance uh, in, in uh, along. I mean, for example, if you're at Columbus Circle, you're not going to be walking back to Flushing or to to Chinatown. No. No, <laughs> to Canal Street, right? Um, I did have a classmate you know, I who to... I did have a classmate who um, lived in Queens. He was from Queens, Queens and then one day Lord. he, one day he, t- <laughs> you say it like, you say it like nobody wants to live in Queens. It is the most I popular mean, borough. It of is, New York. but it is it is far out, right? It's not it's like also it's not big. Cent- it's not like central. It's, it's also huge. Big. It is bloody enormous, right? Yeah. So like Long Island City is mm. just across the river. From Manhattan. Mm. But, um, yeah, so he lived um, in Queens, um, probably further away from Manhattan. I remember right. one day he showed up to class and he said, I walked here just because... <laughs> I think it took him, like, almost two hours. 
Good lord, hang on, sorry, my microphone just died. Oh, again. Great. I haven't edited the last episode for this reason because I don't want to <laughs> go hunting for the microphone break. Hang on. What on earth? I, I need to change this dongle. Yeah, I think so too. I will take the opportunity to eat. What is... Oh my god. Uh, Give me a sec. Let me just see if I can find a replacement dongle for this. No, I can't. Okay, uh, that's that's not happening. I think it should have switched back to yep. uh, this the Yeti. Yep, you're on the good mic. Okay, I'm on the good mic. Uh, right. Okay, and I'm gonna carry on uh, talking. Is it? No, it's not working. Why is it not recording? Bloody hell! I mean, I hear you. Yes. No. Uh, audition is not recording. Right. Gonna quit audition and reopen it again. Presumably because the last time it, yeah, mm, yeah, it, it lost the mic, so it just stopped. Yeah, it just decided. Ah, okay, I'm not recording anymore. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense, right? But you know, and it lost the mic. Oh, for fuck's sake! And the mic is back. No, no, no! It's not switched back. No, nope, it's not. My... Yeah, it's not. What on earth is going on here? Yes? Okay. Uh, and it should be work. No, it's still not working. Why is it not cocking working? No, no. This is so annoying. And it's... Why is it... Is it is... Oh, God. Let's try this again. Uh, okay, I need to go to Funan and get a a new dongle, which is going to be more Monet. Is it recording now? It's not recording. Hang on. Uh, yes, 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 yes. Input, output. Why is audition not allowing me to record? Good question. Oh no. New audio file. Entitled uh, to. Nope, I cannot seem to record on Audition for some inexplicable reason. No, oh God, let me just reboot this again. Don't tell me I need to reboot my computer. Technology. I haven't even told you what happened last week, so yeah. I mean, in the worst case, we can use the Zoom recording. Not great. Mm, Okay. Yeah, yeah. not perfect. 
Yes. Okay, now it's recording. Excellent. Okay, we're back. Sorry. Okay, great. Yes, we had a, a brief blip of technological problems there. I think it was a little bit more than a blip. Yeah, fair. Yeah. So anyway, where were we? What were um, we talking? What were we? I do not remember. And I do not recall I either. I think we might as well move to a different conversation. We because could, yes. I, I don't remember what, what we were talking about. Fair enough. Speaking of sea legs and shaking, um, shaking, shaking legs. grounds, I guess. <laughs> yeah, earthquakes. Um, earthquakes. Yeah. Have you? Um, well, you've been to the Natural History Museum in London, right? Yes, I have. Um, I've, well, not just once. I've, I, I. So uh, it's a funny story. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if I've told this already, but uh, when I visited London, I, you know, my, well, I, just, I was in the UK for a conference. I was in Leicester, and I budgeted five full days in London. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously the, the main focus of my visit to London was the Natural History Museum. So I yep. booked a, a budget German hostel, uh, uh, or I booked a place with a budget German hostel chain, which happens to be in Scout's House, which is literally across the road from mm-hmm. the NHM. Right. Um, it, was a, it was a decent hostel. It was fairly cramped, uh, but, uh, you know... I, I spent, I think, two entire days. Yes, you mentioned that it's a German hostel chain. Do you remember the name? Yes, I, it was. I know that their color branding was reddish orange. I cannot remember what it's called. Okay, if um, given, I mean it's it's on. Yep, you say. If given the name, would you actually be able to? Would you remember? Would you remember it? Um, I mean, I'm looking it up now, because um, I mean it's you know just Google Maps under NHM and just right beside it, Baden Powell House. Where the hell is the NHM now? Uh, Westminster Abbey. Yeah. Where's Kensington? Belgravia. Um, Marlebo- oh, there we go. Um, Marlebone. Uh Meininger Hotel. Is it? No, it's not Meininger. Ah, okay. Hotel. Yeah. Meininger. It is Meininger. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Meininger, I'm less familiar with because I've never okay, stayed there. I've just, I've just seen it. I've just seen like ads for it everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. It's cheap. Okay. And you know, I mean I'm for what it's for what you're paying it's to good. Hear that it's decent. Yeah. <laughs> Could be worse. I've I've lived in worse basically. Um but yeah, I so you know, stories, but yeah. Mm, okay, so yes, you were saying NHM. I've been to the NHM multiple yep. times uh, yep. in a single trip, yes. Have you seen the geology exhibits in the I think near the top floors? Y- yes, it's made less of an impression, but sure, yeah, I definitely have seen it. Yeah, so I well, one thing I like about it is that it's it's quieter than, than the first mm. few floors. Well, I mean, all geology exhibitions are quieter than the rest of the museum. That's true. It is the nature of of geology exhibits. Right. So, Except maybe the AMNH. AMNH one was quite... Do you know I've never of, been uh, inside the AMNH? How? You, you lived in New York for years. <laughs> um, I lived in Lower Manhattan. Mm. It's a trip... So it is I would still have to because it is on the upper west side, right? Correct. Yeah, I would have to dedicate time to go up there, and it's like yeah. on any given day, if I go up there, I'm more likely to be at the Met, and then that's going to take a day. So <laughs> okay. That's. It. I mean, yeah. I, I, you know, my 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 last trip to the US, which which was you know last year, Ju- July 2019, I actually spent I think a couple of days in New York, and I I had to visit the NHM a couple uh, the MNH a couple of times because of work. Uh, right. And I was commuting from Brooklyn. I was commuting from Prospect Park. And that yep. was a commute. My God. Yeah, no, I'm not a fan. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. I mean, that's also kind of why. <laughs> I, I guess this is the equivalent, right, of somebody from, you know, Brooklyn or Queens thinking like, huh, wouldn't it be nice to live in Manhattan? <laughs> In the mm. same way that, you know, somebody from, like, <laughs> Tampanese or Pongo uh, is going to be like, wouldn't it be nice to have a place orchard, to crash, right, right mm. in town? But I, I wouldn't, <laughs> I probably wouldn't pick, I probably wouldn't pick, like, like, town itself. I would probably look for, mm-hmm. you know, like, Jalan Basa or something. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I, I mentioned it because there is one exhibit from the you know, the geology exhibition that has kind of stuck because of how well-designed it is. I mean, I think of it as being well-designed, right? There's a little corner in the geology exhibition where um, they've set up what looks like, I think, a bus or... um, Would it be a bus? I can't remember. But they've set up um, an area, right, that's on a platform and mm-hmm. they have um, a camera. Well, not a camera. They have a um, they have a a screen, right, showing a CCTV recording. And the CCTV recording, right, is the one is the kind of recording that you see every now and then after an earthquake hits, where you oh. know it's like a store, and then like stuff just flying off the shelves and, and mm-hmm. everything. <coughs> yeah. And so you go onto the moving platform, right? I remember this. Okay, yes, yeah. yes. I remember this now. Yeah. And then Sorry. they have the ground shake for, I think it's probably like a six um, Richter kind of earthquake. Yeah. It simulates right. the earthquake, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it simulates the earthquake. And it basically looks like you're on a train or a bus or whatever. And I think that's just because then they can put the grab poles in. <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> right yep. so you you get yep. on and then you just hang on to the grab poles and then they shake the platform and I actually yep. thought that was really um, I, I, I guess informative is not the word right because it's elegant yeah say. it's a really good demonstration um, of the kind of thing that really belongs in a museum mm-hmm. yep. you don't think of it as something that falls under the you know responsibility of a museum but in a way it, it does because if you think of museums as being um, places to not just collect knowledge right but to mm-hmm. present experiential knowledge right to kind of like diffuse um, knowledge that has to be experienced to be understood yeah 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 then that's a really well, uh, I mean good there is a lot of this this, you know, you're tapping into this sort of deep museological discourse, which, yep. uh, they're, they're, I mean, obviously this this idea that museums should be sites of experience uh, yep. more than just, you know, dusty collections is something that is has been deeply, deeply explored in, in, in academia. Uh, and yep. of course, you know, as a concept, it runs into several problematic issues as well, right? You know, yeah. uh, m- the most fundamental being, well, if it's experiential rather than... Uh, you know, if, if the museum experience becomes overly focused on experientiality, then what differentiates it from a theme park? Or, I mean, to say theme park, right, is 
That's the extreme case, theme park right? Is the common, well, it's, it's the common sort of invective level yeah. at some museums. Uh, I, I think of it more as falling under the purview of, you know, any other pedagogical issue. Because as long as you're, if you're talking about museums as being um, collections of information. Objects. Right? Mm. Then you kind of fall under the purview of effectively library science, right? Or information science. Yeah. It's kind of, yeah. it's kind of um, given X amount of information, how do you organize it in such a way that it's retrievable? And I think you're cutting out... It becomes again. curation. Oh, yeah, oh, I mean, you, oh. okay. You were cutting out for a brief period of time and now you're no, back, fine. I guess. Yeah, so, yeah. 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 So, um, yeah. I mean, that is the be- old school definition of a museum, right? Right, it's a, a, exactly. A curatorial uh, uh, pursuit. Yeah. And I think if you move more towards... I, I, I wouldn't go as far as to say like just pure experience, right? Because if you go all the way to the experience end, you skip over the... I, I don't know if I would call it the middle ground, but you skip completely over the pedagogical aspect of museums. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think yeah. when there is this focus on, okay, we let's not just collect the knowledge, but let's try and present it in a way that leverages what the museum uh, has that most other educational institutions don't, which is... Mm-hmm. You can come here and you can actually see things for yourself, right? Yeah. Um, then it becomes a pedagogical question, which is, mm-hmm. we have this information, how do we disseminate it to the public? Yeah. And sometimes that means, you know, exhibits behind glass. <laughs> because yep. if they are not exhibits behind glass, soon the information stolen. will be stolen or become unavailable or... Mm-hmm. <laughs> just be destroyed. Adulterated in some form, that's right. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> right? And on, on the other hand, sometimes you can translate that into something like an earthquake platform, right? Yes. Of, you know, okay, this is a geology exhibit. We should talk about earthquakes and how they happen. Yeah. Right? And yep. also, therefore, what the experience of being an earthquake is like if you haven't had your <laughs> misfortune of being in one. Mm. Um. I but I mean, you see, this this exhibit in particular mm-hmm. really is the closest the NHM comes to a theme park. It is true, yeah. Because it's a ride, essentially. Right? It, is a, it is a ride. <laughs> I mean, I would say the the distinguishing feature, right? And this is a qualitative distinction. So it's not a matter of degree. One is um, for things in museums that are intended to be experienced is the goal excitement or is it education Mm. because for a lot of museums they really don't cross over that line at all it's very much about yeah well no i disagree i disagree i mean look at i mean in in the same nhm right you have Uh the t-rex animatronic come on (laughs) you have a whole bunch of dinosaur animatronics right that move around and and make noises that you know may not necessarily be accurate that's true i think i just ignored that part I think I just ignore that part, to be honest. I mean, my my primary um, impression upon entering the NHM was too many kids. Too many kids. Uh, Yeah, which is why I ran away. Where else are you going to find the kids other than the dinosaurs? Yeah. I mean, kids, you know, including kids my size as well, so. (laughs) That's true. But, okay, I think this is another problem, um... It's not necessarily unique to museums, right? I think, again, you get this in in anything pedagogical, which is how do you draw people in who are not already interested? Mm -hmm. 
That yep. one yep. is a quality. That one is a difference of degree, I think. Right? Yeah. Like, can you do something exciting that is, still has some educational value, and then you can move them towards the exhibits that are more purely about you should learn about this because it's interesting. The nudge, yeah. Right? The yeah. Exactly. But then yeah. again, that's why the T Rex is the T Rex, and the geological mm-hmm. exhibition is hidden away on the top floor. Yes, I, 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 for some reason, I seem to associate the geological exhibition with um, that fantastically well-preserved uh, stegosaurus-like fossil the, uh, below the long escalator, the really long escalator in the very dark chamber. I can, anyway, sorry. I, it's, I it's have been no recollection of this. It has been five years since I visited the NHM in London. Um, you know, a lot uh, of it is... It's is, been much is, longer is, is no for longer. me, so... Fair enough. Yeah. So, but... I mean, yeah, fair points. Yeah, and and I really did. I think this was it was recreating the Tohoku uh, earthquake, wasn't it? The I think Japan, so. Yeah, it was either a, a Japanese earthquake. It was either that or New Zealand, but I think it's Japan. Yeah, I think it's Japan, if I remember correctly, yeah. uh, because I've seen this also featured in documentaries as a fairly good example of you know museum uh, uh, exhibition and also the illustration of, of what an earthquake is supposed to be like. I don't think any other exhibit in the world really illustrates this quite as viscerally as as this one does. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about museums that have, uh, I don't want to say a gimmick or or a shtick, because clearly this is something that, you know, somebody sat down and thought through, and you don't Mm -hmm. just install an earthquake platform for the (laughs) sake of it, right? Um, It's not something that you just go, oh, you know, yeah, there's an earthquake platform in the back. Yeah. Should we just have you, display? Okay. Have you been to the um, the Holocaust Museum in DC? No, I did. No, I have not. I I, I had I think less than a day to spend in DC, so I yeah. only went to the Smithsonian and the End Space. I was at the National yeah. Museum in the End Space. Yeah. So yeah. I um, went to DC for a couple of days, and it was actually a pretty mm-hmm. cool uh, initiative where the students, the Singaporean students at Georgetown. They invited hmm. students from up and down the East Coast oh, to say, nice. hey, yeah, um, come down to Georgetown for a weekend. One of the Georgetown students will host you and then you can explore DC and we'll, oh, you know, wow. get to that. Yeah, that's pretty sweet. We'll get together and maybe like have some, um, they, they tried to organize a mini conference, but hmm. when they called for speakers, they got literally just <laughs> Georgetown, they got like nobody except apparently me. (laughs) So the entire lineup was Georgetown students who had been like gang-pressed into giving talks and then me. And all on politics and uh, political science and Uh, their specialty, right? Not necessarily. I mean, to be fair, to be fair, they're an interesting bunch of people and, you know, some of it, I mean, you you can say, you know, politics and and so on, but, you know, they they would talk about things like... um, human rights issues in Singapore or mm. like uh, um, the deaf community, for example. Mm-hmm. Right. right. Okay. So okay. this is a, the upside, right, of these being Georgetown students is that they're all very politically aware. And so they you actually get... hell of a... Yeah. Yeah, you actually get some really it's interesting a, talks. Yeah. So apparently it was... Right. Nobody signed up except me. <laughs> and so they filled out the rest of the schedule with with um, Georgetown students. Own people. Right. With, yeah, their own people. Yeah, and so they did the thing where, you know, they, they cater some um, Southeast Asian food and then mm-hmm. you hang out, 
they bring you around to like the places where students hang out. So, <laughs> ice cream shops, cafes. <laughs> uh, yes. Yes. Um, and then they're like, okay, yeah, just, you know, spend the next day just exploring DC, I guess. And, uh, yeah, so I, I think somebody asked at some point, it's like, you know, given limited amounts of time, where would you go? Like, what would mm, you prioritize? Yeah. And they all said, As is go, always to the the, case, yeah. Yeah, go to the Holocaust Museum, because it's, mm. it's the best one. Um, okay. oh, is it? not not the best Holocaust museum, right? But no, as, in, as in, it is one of the better museums in, in DC. In, I yeah. mean, in museum-rich DC, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, when made a beeline for it, and mm. basically, they have again tried to make it an experience, right? But a very educational mm. experience. So, the very first thing that happens when you step inside is, you know, when you get your ticket and so on, they give you, um, I think. Do they call it a passport or something? But they basically give you okay. an identity card. I mean, yes. it's their own um, museum-made ID card, right? But mm-hmm. it contains the identification details of somebody who died in the Holocaust. Right. Right. Yeah. And their goal here, they are kind of explicit about it, is when you think about the idea that six million people died in the Holocaust, like everybody knows that number. Right, yeah, it's repeated enough to become meaningless, but yeah. when you get in there, you buy a ticket and they give you the actual name of somebody who yeah. who died in the Holocaust. Right, they're just kind of telling you, okay, now when you go through the museum, you can personalize this experience. Right, mm, yes. here is like a name and a face and an identity that you can attach to all of these terrible things that happened. Yeah. Um, I had a similar experience um, in uh, New Orleans because the uh, National World War II Museum is there. Right. Yes. I, I'm not sure why it's... Oh, no, I think I, I know why it's there. One of the uh, the famous uh, historic, American historians of the Second World War is based either at uh, Tulane or one of the New Orleans uh, uh, mm-hmm. uh, universities. Right. Um, and so I think they... Uh, give you a dog tag or something like that, or some kind of identifier as well. Yeah. Uh, and you basically uh, attach to a character or to to a, a living a, a person who lived during the war and was a, a, probably a GI or a soldier, American soldier right. during the war. Right. Yeah. And so that's you relive that person's story as you pass through the museum as well. Yeah. So it's I mean it's 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 not a it is a very powerful storytelling tool. Uh, there I is, find. Um, yeah. A museum in Berlin called the mm-hmm. Topography of Terror. Oh, and oh, wow. okay. it I I forget what site it's on. The site that it's on is is historic as well, but mm. uh, it's considered one of the uh, really good museums in in Berlin. Uh, and again, Berlin is literally an, a city of museums, right? Like they have yeah. a UNESCO World Heritage Site called Museum Island. Oh, jeez, um, yeah, although Museum Island is an interesting case in itself because it's mostly um, it's designated as a Museum Island for I think five or six museums that are on it. Okay, and they are mostly art and archaeology museums. Mm. Um, interestingly enough, which I think speaks to Germany's role in Egyptology. Yes, right, which yeah. is in its own way quite controversial if you think about how a lot oh, of those absolutely. artifacts got there right but yeah. um 
that aside, leaving aside the, you know, hmm. the art and archaeology museums, right, you still get, like, you know, um, Cold War museums and things like that. Mm-hmm. And um, the topography of terror is a World War II museum. Okay. And obviously, when it comes to Germany's role in World War II, you're not going to get... It, it's <laughs> much more difficult for them to do something approaching the Holocaust Museum, right? Because yes. it's still too too close, I think. It's a life. It's still within the same lifetime. Yeah, for, correct. For many people, who it's still within live, living yeah. memory for some people, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, the topography of terror is an information dump. Oh, oh, oh. yeah. It's a very good information dump, right? But it's right. intense for that reason, which is that you have to go in and be ready to get like a college course. Fire hose, yeah. Yeah, a fire hose of information. And it's very well put together. It's very well curated and everything. And basically everyone who goes there um, has good things to say about the museum, right? And about how it Mm -hmm. presents the information. But I think the way that they've done it, it's not not academic. It's not intellectual, right? Right. Um, Okay. You you really do have to engage with the material. But I think they make Mm. it that way. Because I think for them, they are a little bit afraid of the theme park experience. Yes. And the degree to which it might be seen as trivializing World War II. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, Yep. And so they stick to a very very curatorial role of this is all the information that we have as an archive. And we're going to give you the information in a way that a college professor <clears throat> who mm. is, um, you know, a subject matter expert might say yep. introduction to this field that I'm a, an expert in. I've looked at all the material and this is the critical information that you need to know to get started. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and they do that. And mm-hmm. if you go in, it's just like an open um, exhibition. It's like mm-hmm. an open floor. And you just walk through reading. <laughs> You're just <laughs> reading this panel and then that panel and then that panel yeah. and then that panel. And at the yeah. end of it, you really feel like you took a college course. Right. Yeah. I mean, number one, this makes me really miss the whole, you know, I mean, I, one of the reasons why I travel is to visit museums. Yes. I really, I'm definitely a museum traveler. Yes. Really, really miss this aspect of travel. You know, I have, having, I mean, to be fair, I am lucky because oh, we are lucky because we are back in Singapore, right? Where yes. uh, museums are open <laughs> for one. <sighs> yeah. Um, and I am currently working out of a museum. Right. Yes. So, you know, there is that, that psychological benefit, uh, that I, I am I'm receiving from from actually still being close to a place that I really love, mm-hmm. uh, an experience that I really love. But yeah, man, I really miss the the whole joy of just going to a city and just spending. You know, I, I mean, I, I have my fair share of museum stories, and some of them are quite bizarre. Okay, right? like the time I accidentally walked into the VNA. Yes, I think I've told you this you've, story you've before. Told this story. It's how. Yeah. Yes, I think maybe even on this podcast, how I, I when so, I was yes. walking 
through London, I found this old building, which is, you know, a dime a dozen. And it looked really interesting. I walked in and it, I spent four hours. <laughs> I think <laughs> I've mentioned... Mistake. Yeah, I think I've mentioned that I don't actually have any recollection of the facade of the V&A because every time I've gone there, I'm just... That's right. Yep. Use the underground entrance, yeah. Yeah. So, and, and, and you know, the... the yeah, it's also, it's it's just that 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 joy of you know losing yourself in a gallery, and I mean, on average, I spend about four hours in the museum uh, per trip. You know, I think meaning that, that is if I accurate. Yeah. go go back on multiple trips, that's eight hours just locked yeah. in the gallery. Um, you know, yeah. and and <laughs> the funny thing was also um, because now I am a I consider myself a museum professional. Okay. Right? So when I visit that museums, makes sense. you were no working longer... in a museum right now, anyway. Yeah, you know, yep. it's when I visit a museum, I'm no longer just going there for the gallery. I'm going there for work, yep. and so over the last uh, winter break, uh, I you know December 2020, I uh, did this crazy epic trip across the US. Right, I started in Albuquerque, uh-huh. where I'm, I'm normally based, and then took the Amtrak up to Lawrence in Kansas, mm-hmm. where uh, the University of Kansas is. Then took the uh, took the Amtrak on to Chicago, where the Field Museum is, Field Museum of Natural History, and yep. then down to New Orleans, and then to Tucson, and then back to Albuquerque. Um, and so, uh, I, you know, I, on that trip, I spent time working at two museums, the uh, KUNHM, the University of Kansas Natural History Museum, mm-hmm. and the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago. And both times, right, you know, I told myself, okay, I will wake up early in the morning, go to the museum, do whatever work I need to do, and then I will spend the blissful rest of the late afternoon to early evening wandering in the galleries and seeing what these museums have to offer. I go in, um, go into the collection, I sit down, I pull out my tray of birds, I take out my measurement calipers, I measure, measure, measure. By the time I look up again, it is 8pm. Yeah. <laughs> and the well security guard is jangling their keys going, can you please get out? I need to lock up. Well done. <laughs> so, yeah. literally, right, um, at the Field Museum, I finished my data collection. I, I spent th- uh, three whole days at the F- Field Museum working. Mm-hmm. On the last day, I told myself, I'm going to finish this ahead of time, and I'm going to spend the entire afternoon. Because the Field Museum is, you know, it's a, it's a, fant- it's a fantastic museum. It's a world-class museum. Right, the yep. exhibits there are just amazing, and of course, you know everyone goes there for well, everyone that I know, uh, meaning that maybe a small, only a small proportion of people go there for one important thing, which is sue the T Rex, the most complete T Rex fossil ever uncovered on Earth. It's at the field, it's exhibited at the Field Museum of Natural History, right? Uh, and it's such an important fossil that you know I I I perhaps in the, in in a moment of foreshadowing, uh, I think on my first day there. I, you know, I came in in the morning, I did my work, and then during my lunch break, my very brief half-hour lunch break, I ran down to the cafe, got myself a sandwich, scuffed it down, ran into the collect- into the gallery, took a selfie with Sue, and then ran back up to the collection to work again. No comment. I literally running. I mean, there were there probably stories of a crazy Asian guy running through the film museum going, I need to see Sue! Um, but no, so... So on my last day, I told myself uh-huh. I tried to finish ahead of time. I finished right. at I think four thirty, and the museum closed at five, or something mm. like that, five thirty. So right. I, yeah, I had one hour to race through the entire field museum of natural history. 
right. uh, and see what they had to 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 show. And it was, it, I mean, it was fun, but it was bloody hectic. Yeah, I I I really don't like being rushed through museums. So mm. yeah, I generally end up going through one museum a day when I travel. Mm. Yep. Um, I yep. mean, okay. Incidentally, when I was in when I did a semester abroad in Madrid, we had a class mm. called Masterpieces in the Prado. Mm. Oh, and geez. I took yeah, that class that because well, I took that class for two reasons. <coughs> one was that I read a book by Cal Newport. Um, he's okay. written oh, a lot of product. Huh? Sorry, that name is familiar. Why I don't know he why. He is a computer scientist at Georgetown. Okay. Uh, previously, he did his. Uh, I think he did his PhD at MIT. Could be wrong about that. But okay. he's mostly known for writing productivity books. Oh, and okay. Yeah. And when he was a college student, he wrote one about... I cannot remember cannot remember what it was called, but I read it. Uh, basically, how to hmm. you know be productive in college is, is, is the idea. Right. Of it. And he, he made this comment that stuck with me, which was, you know, to really make use of your undergrad life take a class in astronomy and take a class in art history. The yes. reason yeah, the reason that he said that was these are two fields where you really need an expert to guide you. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And yep. I yep. didn't get the astronomy class in, but um <laughs> that was my art history class. Um mm-hmm. the other reason I took it was because um I met somebody who had gone to Madrid mm. and I asked her like, you know, what are some good classes and good professors to take classes with and she said she wished that she had done the the masterpieces in the Prado class. Mm. So what this class is, right, is it meets twice a week and mm-hmm. one day you're in a classroom and you look at slides as in yeah. old school photographic slides. Oh wow, nice. <laughs> right with the nice. slide projector. I can I can hear the machine, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then the other day of the week you go to the Prado, right? Oh, Class meets yeah. at the Prado and then the professor is taking you through the museum, <sighs> like pointing out like, okay, this is the, the picture that we saw in class the other day and now <laughs> we get to, you know, inspect it. Here are all up. the Goyas. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I mean, there are actually some um, areas of the museum that are very unfrequented because in the Prado, right, everybody goes straight for Las Meninas. Yes. Right. Um, but there are some early Goyas um, on the third floor. And I think many people don't even realize there's a third floor of the Prado. Because <laughs> yeah, because the first and second floors are the large open exhibition spaces, right? The mm. third floor, those are um, kind of rooms. They're just small rooms. And the early Goyas are up there because mm-hmm. they were... Um, I forget what the term is, but they were, he was commissioned basically to make paintings for the, you know, the homes of the Spanish kings, right? The Spanish royals. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. so these were paintings that were meant to be seen in small, small rooms. Right. Yes. Uh, what the co- yeah. uh, uh, what, what's the term? It's what, what boudoir paintings is a matter. Is it? Uh, I do not oh. think in Spain they call them boudoir paintings. No. But no. Yeah. No. This is this is clearly yes. Uh, but yes, th- there is a genre of this uh, that I remember from the National Portrait Gallery uh, in in Scotland of all places. I think. Right. 
We have a right. whole exhibit on this, yeah. Yeah. So we, you know, we would go and see early Goyas, which nobody ever really wants mm-hmm. to see because they just want to see the mid to late Goyas, right? Which uh, are the, right. the well-known paintings. Um, yeah. We also saw the painting that got Goya admitted into the um, Academy of Art. Mm. Which is quite funny, actually, because our professor was extremely dismissive of it. Um, she said, "She said, like, basically, you know, along the lines of, like, look at this shitty painting. <laughs> um, because what happened was that at the time that Goya was an up-and-coming painter, the dominant style was mm-hmm. neoclassical. Right. And it is not, like, Goya's natural style is not neoclassical. Uh, right? Okay. He's much more, he's a lot more... Um, he, his painting style is a bit freer, I think, than yes, a neoclassical yes. style. Yeah, But when he tried to paint more freely, the Academy of Art basically said, this is a bad painting, or we don't like uh-huh. to see, or this painting doesn't demonstrate skill or whatever. Stop doing that. <laughs> yeah. And so he painted something that was very neoclassical, but okay. according to our professor, also very dead. <laughs> right? It's like everyone's a critic these days. Yeah, painting to the <laughs> painting to the test, as it were. Right? Yes. Like, I'm going to, to be graded on on how good how neoclassical my painting looks. Let me paint yeah. like a neoclassical Christ on the cross. So <laughs> yeah, so they have that. But I think the thing is, usually you don't have a lot of um, context. I will say in this regard, right? The Madrid museums are really good because in a lot of museums, especially art museums. When you go up to the painting, it just says what the title of it is, who painted it, mm-hmm. when it was painted, like yep. which collection does it belong to, and then that's it, right? Yep. But the Madrid museums um, are very good in this regard. They usually include like a short write-up, very to the point, Okay. right? Okay. Basically explaining why this painting is important. And it's such a simple thing to do, honestly. Yes. It's, it's really such a simple thing. All you yes. need is a short, well constructed paragraph. Like Correct. I don't know what I'm looking at. What should I be looking a precise, at? Right, yeah. You know. yeah. And the Madrid museums are really good at saying this painting is special because of X. Mm. Then yep. at least yep. that's As gets opposed you to the just, you know, just a blank placard that goes, Yeah, yeah. you know, Goya like, eighteen seventy or you know, whatever, yeah. whatever, whatever, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um so yeah, we were we would go through the museum, right? And yes. our professor would actually just stop us in front of the painting and say, "Let's look at this, mm-hmm. right?" And you saw it on the slide, and now here is the actual painting. Mm. And um, it is it is the benefit of having a guide, right? and this is why yes. you know doing the guided tours at museums actually makes sense. Although yeah. oftentimes I don't visit at the right time, so I but just, I also you know, think this is a case wonder. of this is a case of the guided tours. They are they are for a public audience, right? Which mm-hmm. is yes. a, usually a, a less specialized audience, right? Whereas if you're doing a college class on art history, yep. the professor yep. can spend the 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 Tuesday going mm-hmm. through general principles, and then on yes. the Thursday she can demonstrate them as she goes along. Right. I mean, not I say this as someone Prado. who is a museum yeah. guide or who has yeah. trained as a museum guide. You have yeah. to condense the entirety of the museum into Correct. an hour. Correct. Which is like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. And I mean, so to be fair, right? Firstly, you don't get just one hour. You get 14 hours. Mm, and yes, you can actually exactly. stop at 
a single painting and spend like 30 minutes on it. Yep. Right? Yep. Um, and then to be able to say, okay, let's get the theoretical stuff over and done with in a classroom. Mm-hmm. In the museum, we are just applying the stuff that we've already talked yep. about. Yeah. Right. So, you know, the first class will be like, okay, this is how you analyze a painting, blah, 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 blah. These are the things to look out for. And when you talk about, say, like composition, right, these are the general ideas yep. that we use in analyzing composition. And then on Thursday, mm. you go into the museum, the professor stops here, and then she's just like, okay, so and so, analyze this painting. Yes. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> like, you don't normally get to do that. Like, that's not what a museum guide does. You really that would be terrifying. That would be would, terrifying. Well, <laughs> it would be quite. It would be. It would be an interesting uh, change of pace. Oh, maybe. Maybe I should think about incorporating that into. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you you have museum guide. No, as in you know, you you offer free guided tours, but you offer different levels of difficulty. Yeah. <laughs> would you like to play? <laughs> Visit the museum in easy mode, uh, medium oh, mode, a uh, hard mode, or challenge mode. <laughs> yeah. I think um, the other thing that is interesting, well, I mean, I guess this is true of any museum visit, right? Like, like as you said, museum guides know a lot more than they can teach you in an hour. Yes. Right? Oh, um, absolutely. Yeah. But for, uh, you know, the, the, the organization of the museum is restricted in the sense that the museum curator has to make a decision about yes. here is all this information how do I organize it and in the end I can maybe only talk about two or three different narrative threads so the Prado for example is organized more or less chronologically mm-hmm. um, but the Reina Sofia is organized mm-hmm. thematically right so yeah. the Reina Sofia, you go in and it's like, this is a room about, you know, where all the paintings are thematically related. Then you go to the yeah. next room and yeah, and it's not chronological at all. But when, mm-hmm. again, when you have a guide, right, um, and they are not obliged to, they know the material really well, right? Yep. They can plot a tour for you through the museum that is different from the dominant narrative that yes. the curator has given Correct. you. Yeah. And that's how you can have a, um, for example, when we were studying Goya, we studied Goya chronologically, but that's okay. not how he's arranged in the museum because mm. there is no Goya path through the museum, right? It's just, hmm. here's the neoclassical bit. Here is yep. the romantic bit, right? Yep. Here is the late Goya room. Yep. And you go in when you go into the neoclassical portion, you are looking at all the neoclassical painters. You go into mm-hmm. the, like, you know, the um, early 19th century portion, you're looking at all the early 19th century paintings, right? Mm-hmm. But it, yep. you have the opportunity when you are touring with an expert for her to say, this is the painting that got Goya started. Yes. These are his early commissions. These are his you know, when he was in his prime. And then this is when he was in his late career and very upset at life. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And that's not something that... That's definitely something that the museum could do if it wanted. They've just decided that we are not a Goya museum, which is fair, right? We don't want to 
have a Goya section. We want yes. to spread out the Goyas across yeah. the time period. I mean, you know, this is why museum studies exists, right? Yes. You know, this is the whole academic study of museums and the whole way, you know, designing museums. I mean, I worked for a museum design company as well, yeah. right? I, de- I, I design exhibits. So this is all extremely deliberate. Everything that, that you see, you know, in the museum gallery has gone through layer after layer after layer of approval and thought. Yes. Everything is intentional. Yeah. And especially since um, the Prado is actually a national museum, as in it's mm. run by the government, which um, yeah. speaks to something else that's interesting about the Prado as an art museum. Um, mm-hmm. And I think if you buy the official guidebook to the Prado, they actually talk about this as well. So the origins of the Prado, right, is that it's actually the royal collection of the Spanish kings. Or it began mm, as yeah. the royal collection of the Spanish kings. So as unlike, many museums began, right, as a sort of you know either aristocratic sort of uh, playthings. Many, many, yes. But if you compare mm. it to say the Met or the Louvre, right, right, those are much more generalist museums, in the uh, sense that I'm they not are sure about the Louvre. Though, what what is the origin of the Louvre? I'm not well, sure. About I, I, anyway, I don't know. I'm not sure about yeah. it either. But like their remit is very much. Mm get your hands on everything you can, right? <laughs> okay. Um, we can figure out how to curate it later, so to speak. <laughs> After well, the fact, sure, yeah. Okay, but um, that, that may not be fair, but yeah. Whereas the Prado, it originated as a very um, tight collection to begin with because mm. this is the personal collection of the Spanish kings. And so they have right. their own set of tastes, right? Mm-hmm. And so at the point where the Prado became a museum, it was already like pre-curated as it were, right? You sure. already have a running thread through most of the collection. Yeah, there's a thematic and bias to the collection, which I, actually, I mean, to be fair, many European museums are like this because many of them started as private collections. Yes, yeah. But I'm, I'm sure even the Louvre has has had its origins in something similar as well. It's just that, you know, over time it's decided yeah. to re- reimagine itself as a, as a global art museum. Yeah. But I mean, if you look at the Louvre, the, the collection is humongous. I, okay, put oh, it this way. Yeah. The Prado, right, you can actually, depending on what you mean by finish a museum, right? But you can see the hmm. whole of the Prado in a single day. Can you? Yeah. Oh, wow. It's not that big. How rare. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. It's two and a half floors. Okay. Um, oh, okay. It's pretty yeah, compact. The Louvre, yeah. right? I've Bloody I've hell. read this piece of I've actually read this piece <laughs> of um, advice for visitors to the Louvre, not official, right? This is like you know one of those Lonely Planet type guides where sure. it actually says if you go to the Louvre, you are going to feel formal, right? Because you oh. cannot get through the whole of it. It's impossible oh, yeah. to get through yeah. the whole of it in a single day. And so, um, if this is something that is going to afflict you. Mentally <laughs> break up the Louvre into yeah. a series of smaller mini museums. Then you can <laughs> say to yourself, I have finished seeing the Louvre XYZ collection. Yes. And then you save it's, it's the how, next collection for the next visit. It's how I, I, I approached uh, my visit to the VNA as well, my accidental visit to the VNA. Like I told myself, I would, because the VNA also is not themed. Right? The VNA um, is not a historical museum, it's not an art museum per se. Um, it's <clears> an <throat> object museum yes it's object driven it's concept driven museum I think and so I told myself I will do the first floor right and I did the first floor only it took me four hours to do the first bloody floor of the VNA 
<laughs> yeah. Oh my anyway. god. I, okay, I have to have to say. So th- I remember the VNA for two things. One of which I always remember, and the other one I literally just remembered as we were talking. So um, when I went to a VNA, um, they had an exhibit on um, theatrical props. Okay. Oh wow. Yeah. I don't know if it's a permanent thing or if it's still there, mm-hmm. but the, I don't recall seeing it. It's on one of the upper floors. So okay. if you only did the first floor. <laughs> no, there we go. Yeah, you might it. not have seen it. Yeah. So in um, for for the A levels, right? We for theater studies, we studied um, the Oresteia, which is the first mm-hmm. play in. My God, what is it called? No, no, no. We studied Agamemnon, I think, which is the ah, first okay. play in the Oresteia cycle. I could have, I could, might yes. have that wrong. Um, okay, okay. And there is a very well-known production of Agamemnon by the National Theatre mm-hmm. um, because it's Greek theatre. So yes. traditionally, it's done with masks, mm. right? Yeah. And a lot of modern productions, they no longer do the mask because I think a lot of modern actors and a lot of modern directors they are not comfortable with performing or directing with a mask, right? Because it is a very specialized okay. skill. But um, yes. Sir Peter Hall, he directed uh, he directed the Oresteia cycle um, with the masks. Mm-hmm. And there is actually a recording of it um, oh. when it was performed on stage. But he also directed the National Theatre in Greece, performing it at Epidaurus, which is one of the historic oh Greek theatres. Yeah. So when we were doing our A-levels and, you know, um, studying um, Agamemnon, right? This was a thing that we were like, oh my God, so cool. Yeah. You know, that kind of geekery yeah. that happens when you um, are deep into a specialist subject, basically. Yeah. So they actually have the masks in the V&A in their theatrical oh, props shit. section. Yeah. Oh my god. Super <laughs> I need to cool. revisit the V&A. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 mean, I, I, yeah, I just really... They yeah. also have sections for like, you know, War Horse, the horse in War Horse. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, yep, yep, yep. And yeah, stuff like that. So that really stood out because it's also one of those things about museum when you stumble on something. Yes. Right, you didn't know it was there, but yes, it's something that you're familiar with, and you're like, "Oh my god, it's here!" Uh, in the Louvre, <laughs> I, they had a temporary exhibit where um, they had procured. I shouldn't say procured; they had borrowed. Mm. Uh, <laughs> um, okay, Samuel Beckett's notebook from the National Archives. Oh my god. Yeah. Oh my god. And so yeah, when I was at the Louvre, they actually had the notebook that Samuel Beckett wrote "Waiting for Godot" in. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good so I saw that. Lord. That was cool. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, that was probably the most exciting thing I saw in the Louvre. The Mona Lisa okay. is overrated. The Mona Lisa is <laughs> bloody overrated. I mean, jeez, Louise. All anyway. these. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, the, 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 the thing about any, and this is something, uh, again, I, you know, as I'm sure it's the case with you and definitely is the case with, for me as someone who is a seasoned museum goer and someone who gravitates towards museums, always ignore the most popular exhibit. 
because yes. it's not usually what it's cut out to be, right? In the Louvre, obviously, is the Mona Lisa. Um, in the uh, which which was that famous uh, in 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 the Met, it's um, water lilies. Right. Yeah. 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 Right. Um, in um, 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 in in the uh, National Museum, National Palace Museum of Taiwan, it's that stupid um, jade uh, cabbage, uh, jade that looks like cabbage. Right? Don't <laughs> go and see those things because you're inevitably going to get pissed off with people being stupid. Well, I will say one thing. For let me let me pull up the gate ca- the jade cabbage because I think I actually oh, think it's hilarious. Um, <laughs> but I will actually say one thing for um, water lilies, which is mm-hmm. for some reason. Not that many people go and see it. That and I want to really? say, it's a Van Gogh. No, that no, no. As no, in, it's uh, not. That's, that's a. I know, it's I know. A it's a water lilies. It's a Monet. It's a Monet. But there's a Van Gogh uh, painting that's also very popular at the Met, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, um, that one I'm not. I, ca- I can't remember. Sure. I can't remember. Yeah, but I, I, I kind of remember that at the Met, water lilies wasn't that well. Um, was it? Populated. Was it not? Yeah. Okay. Anyway, I'm thinking of. Um, okay, so to be fair, right? If you have the opportunity to go to the museum and not, you know, at a time when hmm. no certain paintings there. aren't being swarmed. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, it's not too bad. Yeah, right. I, I, I agree. And, I agree, and and you definitely should like you know I if you are going to the Prado, please go and see Las Meninas, right? Don't don't yes. be a dumb, don't be dumb. Like yeah. go and but, see but it. The question is, don't don't you know do what everyone is doing and spend like half of your you know or a significant chunk of your time just ogling at one gallery when you have or one painting or one piece of work when you have literally the whole museum correct to explore. But I will say one thing that kind of struck me right was um in the Reina Sofia. Their star mm-hmm. painting is Guernica, right? Right. And okay, Guernica ha- is massive. Yes. Humongous. Uh, it, it takes it's... a whole room in yep. in the Reina Sofia, and so yep. it it takes up an entire wall of the room, and then the rest of the room, right? It shows um, Picasso's um, sketches, his hand drawn mm-hmm. sketches for for mm-hmm. Guernica, uh, which are also really interesting. Yeah. The thing that struck me about Guernica, because, okay, you it's so big, you don't feel like you're being shortchanged by the fact that there are so many people <laughs> staring at it. Because, Fair. yeah, you can get a plenty good view of it. The thing mm-hmm. that struck me about Guernica is that so many people took photos of it, right? So many people mm-hmm. do the thing where they go, wow, and then you take a photo and then you leave. Kick, 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 kick. Yes. Yeah. But Guernica, I found it's actually such a powerful painting I actually found it very difficult to look at it for an extended period of time mm-hmm. right because it's one of those like if you're really paying attention to it it's, it's not disturbing. an easy it's really disturbing it is right and like I have this v- massive disconnect of watching people go wow click 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 and then leaving I'm like yes you kind of messed it up here. You, you're missing the point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I will also say, um, in its own way, the museum doesn't help because you go to a museum shop, right? It's full mm, of really yeah. good stuff. But <sighs> they have to have their merch with Guernica all over. I'm like, why 
Does anybody want to carry a tote bag with Guernica plastered on it? Jeez Louise. Like, yep. are you nuts? Yep. It's, it's actually, <laughs> yeah, it's a really, like you said, disturbing it is. Painting. It's a Picasso. <laughs> Picasso. I, mean, I personally find Picasso that's... paintings to be deeply disturbing. But I mean, besides that, right? But I mean, yeah. leaving aside the fact that <laughs> Picasso can be very uh, uncanny mm-hmm. um, in the original. Who coined it? Who coined it? Was it Freud? It might have been Freud. Oh, yeah, maybe. I can't uh, remember. Probably. Yeah, but, okay. In the original kind of sense of the word, right? Mm-hmm. You are looking at a painting that literally depicts like people being bombed yes why exactly. is it on your tote bag yes <laughs> yeah <laughs> but you were saying and, gonna say something uh, about the uh, about the cabbage no 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 <laughs> i was just i, I oh. just put it in the in the show notes because oh i see i okay. think it's a hilarious flagship <laughs> it, it is it is very chinese in that you know we love our food so much that any stone that looks like food we <laughs> we venerate to some extent <laughs> I mean, I will say, you know, as a as a piece of of craftsmanship, it is stunning. Yeah, <laughs> sure, but I mean, it's very Ch- it's very deeply Chinese. I feel. But I mean, I think it is very much a case of when you go to a museum, not ignore the the you know the big exhibit, but sure. Don't Just, don't focus too much on it. Yeah. Right. There, you know, there, there is don't don't center your entire experience of the museum on that one artifact because yeah. there is literally the rest of good stuff. Yeah. I, I have to be honest with you. So I when I went to the Met, I was last one to the Met in twenty nineteen, uh, July twenty nineteen. Mm-hmm. Um, the re- I mean, obviously, I've only been there a couple times, and the first time I went, I had uh, I think similar to my other museum experiences about an hour. Two mm-hmm. okay. This is I. This is because the first time I went to the Met, you know, because I was walking over from the AMNH. I knew, and it. it's a short walk through Central Park to the Met, right? Uh-huh. So not only did I only budget an afternoon to spend in the Met, which is not enough, uh, I got distracted by the birds at Central Park. I knew <laughs> so it. So by the time I arrived at the Met, I think it was like four thirty, five o'clock, <laughs> and um, I. Again, I think there was there's probably CCTV footage of, of, of a crazy Chinese person racing their way down that you know that 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 uh, classical hall, <laughs> right? <laughs> Looking I, at the statues. <laughs> I'm actually, I mean, one of my um, JC friends um, visited New York with her family the first mm-hmm. semester that I was in New York, and she was. Like her family was there on tour, so they had a tour guide and mm. everything. For some reason, the tour itinerary budgeted one hour at the Met. What the fuck? Yeah. I mean, if and it's so, your own time, that's fine. But if it's a tour, that is a disgrace. Right. And so <laughs> they made a decision as a family that they wouldn't, you know, they didn't want to buy the ticket and go in for an hour. Mm-hmm. They spent an hour in the museum shop. Oh my god! And I actually can't decide if that's awful or it's clever or yeah, yeah. I know, right? Okay, so okay, <laughs> right. so what I was, what I was, and I know we're running way over time, but I love museums this much. So, so yeah, the, that's fine. The, I I like them too. The reason why I went to the Met, uh, 
I mean, aside from the fact that I, you know, I only had my first visit was really, really, really short. Uh, I had two reasons. One, there was a very good exhibition on camp, uh, camp right. culture at right. the Met at the time. It was fantastically well done. Right. Um, but the other one was because, um, shit, I, now all of a sudden I can't remember his name. I wanted to rehabilitate my personal notion of that guy who paints rectangles. What's his name? No, not Mondrian, the other one. No, not Mondrian, the other one. No, the one that just paints, no, just paints colored Oh, no, Rothko, Rothko. Rothko, that's right. I wanted to rehabilitate my personal notion of Mark Rothko. Uh, unfortunately, I failed because I still don't understand <laughs> Mark Rothko. <laughs> I just Me neither. cannot understand what people see in a bloody Mark Rothko. It's just some colored rectangles in space. I, I mean, I enormous. Say, I am because, you know, I'm, okay. Mm-hmm. No, because people tell you that, you know, you, 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 you have to visually experience a Rothko in person in order to feel its power. Right, because of the size of the canvas I and everything. I disagree, but okay. That's what people tell me, and you know, when I when I talk to people, how, when I tell people about how you know, I personally do not understand Rothko. They say, "No, you have to see it at the museum in person. Then you understand." I have seen it in person at the museum, and I still don't understand what the fuck yeah, is going really on get, with Rothko. <laughs> I have to. I don't really get Rothko. So the thing, okay, I, we are running long, but who cares, right? Yes. Um, the masterpieces in the Prado class, right? The way that our professor taught us to analyze these paintings, and okay, the Prado class um, had a time period set to it. So I think it was 1400 to 1800. Okay. Maybe a little past 1800 because um, there are some important Goya paintings from the early 1800s. Mm. Um, the way that she had us analyze the paintings for this time period was, okay, well, who painted it? Who commissioned it? When was it painted? Then um, she described it as internal story and external story. Oh. Yeah. And so the internal story is what does the painting depict? Mm. And the external story is in what context was this painted? Right. Right. Okay. So, and then of course you have like composition and color and things like that Mm. um and so you know let's say you're analyzing a uh, you're analyzing like what's a famous prado painting charles v um at mullenberg right Mm. Uh, which is a titian painting and it's also one of the great works of art if you play civ six (laughs) 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 okay uh yep if you play civ six and you get uh, extra yeah it's titian (laughs) Yeah, if you get Civ Six and you manage to get Titian, the great artist, he will paint mm. Charles at Mullenberg f- for you. So, you know, the internal story is this is Charles V. He is on horseback. Um, mm-hmm. He is, you know, after a victorious battle, that kind of thing. And the external story is this is, I think, during the Hundred Years' War, right? right. And it's depicting victorious Charles, right? And so he, paint, he had mm-hmm. it painted to commemorate a victory yes. during the Hundred Years' War. And um, that's just like the basics of it. Um, yeah. Obviously, you do this for every painting. So I asked her, right, can you use this framework to analyze modern paintings? Mm. And she said, wow, that's, a, <laughs> that's going to take time to discuss. <laughs> but if you want, right, you can meet me before class. Mm-hmm. And we can talk about it. 
I said, yeah, mm-hmm. sure, I'll meet you before class. And oh, what so a we met. Professor. Yeah, she, she was great. She was amazing. So um, met her one day before class started. And when I when I asked that question, I had in mind people like Rothko, right? Yes. Um, and incidentally, she loves she loves her Rothko. She really oh, likes God. Rothko. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But I think for okay to be fair to her, the framework for her is an intellectual framework. But mm-hmm. her as a person, she yep. has extremely emotional responses. Oh, art. I see. Okay, yeah. And yeah. so for her, she just happens to really like Rothko. And it mm-hmm. doesn't matter how much she can or cannot intellectualize it. She will just say like, ah, heck it. Right? I like it and too bad for you. Yeah. Uh, even though she's an art history professor. Um, can I just say, sorry, this this no. seems to be the common thread of people who really like Rothko. is that they, they form this really emotional approach towards art. Which, I mean, I don't have a problem with, right? Yeah, no, I, it's, I, just it's just it's not, I, I don't see it. I don't get it, yeah. Me neither. Yeah. Okay. Because um, I um, think my first introduction to Rothko was a, a BBC documentary series presented by Simon Sharma called Power of uh-huh. Art. Uh, okay. I think it's like four or six episodes. Each episode, one artist. So Caravaggio, Rothko, and so on and so forth. Yeah. Right. Uh, I think Bernini was one of the episodes as well. And then the way Simon Sharma described Rothko is like, oh, you know, it's like, yes. You know, all that emotion, all that feeling. And you go, ah, okay. I don't know about that. <laughs> anyway. Okay. So I had in mind artists like Rothko, right? When I was asking yes. the question, like yeah. what, what yeah. exactly is the internal story of a, of a yeah. Rothko? So we met before class one day and then she sat me down and she said, well, you had this question about modern art and whether we could use this framework to analyze it. So let's begin in 1789. I was like, oh my God, this is not what I signed up for. <laughs> Clearly, there was a, 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 a something that was lost in temporal translation there. Um, no, but she really didn't mean to start in 1789. And I think part mm. of that is the, the European time scale, right? Yes. <laughs> um, for them, 1789 is not that long ago. <laughs> but also, um, she had a real point, which is obviously when you say 1789, you think French Revolution. Yes. And... Prior to that point, the main patrons of art were the aristocracy, mm-hmm. yeah. right? And so the the painters, they painted whatever the aristocracy wanted. Mm-hmm. And they were thought of as craftsmen in the way that, for example, a wedding photographer, right, might be considered a craftsman today. Yeah. Right? Or a reporter might be considered a craftsman because sure. they have a job to do and the creative aspect of it is incidental to the technical aspect. It was a trade, basically, a trade yeah. craft, yeah. Correct. And so these were people who were hired to, you know, decorate the court, decorate the palaces, mm-hmm. to um, make paintings um, as historical records, right? Yes. Painting portraits of important people, painting, um, painting, por- um, there, there's a genre, right, of history painting, where you are yep. painting um, a visual record of important historical events. Yes. Right? And from her point of view as an art history professor and as a European, (laughs) is Mm -hmm. that started to disintegrate after 1789 because that's the beginning of the end for the aristocracy. 
Yes. Okay. Right? And so now, you enter a period of time where the artists can paint for purely creative reasons. They're not being commissioned mm. to paint. And you see this, especially in the French artists of the time of that time, because they were the first to become a republic, right? Yes. And that's where you have those um, France-based artists, uh, Von Hoch, um, mm. who else? Monet, um, yeah. Degas, and Renoir? so on. No. Yeah. What? Degas, yes. Okay, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. And I these don't know are all these... Sorry, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So these are all the people who now they have the skill of painting, uh, or they've developed it, right? But they are not constrained in what they have to paint. Mm-hmm. Which has its own downsides, right? It means they're not being commissioned. I mean, von Hoff yes. famously, um, you know, didn't exactly make any money mm-hmm. as a painter. Um, mm-hmm. His brother was an art dealer, I think. Oh. Yeah. Okay. And that's how Didn't his that. paintings have survived to this day because ah. his brother and his sister-in-law uh, were big believers in his art and they basically right. kept okay. on promoting it um, mm. you know after his death You're could right. be wrong about that but it's something along those lines okay. and so now you no longer are restricted to painting mythological paintings important historical events yep. and so on and so forth you can paint whatever you want hence water lilies mm. uh, starry night <laughs> mm-hmm. right um, yep. Toulouse Latrec's paintings of prostitutes Mm, right, <laughs> right, um, yeah. and then that was also around the time where there started to be a better understanding of what light actually was. Right, That's where you get yes. like pointillism and and things like that, yes. because they started to experiment with the idea of actually deconstructing an image to its mm-hmm. atomic bits. Yep. Right, and then of course yeah, the logical yeah, yeah. end point of that is things like Vanta Black, or yes, Rothko. oh god, <laughs> right? Yes, yeah, 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 and oh, um, just like the union of of the visual arts as a trade with science, mm. the science of vision and imaging and seeing yep. and, and everything, yeah, yeah, and then when you follow this thread down, that's how you end up at Rothko. <laughs> Which yes. I can appreciate, yes, but still doesn't do anything for me. Sure, yeah. I mean, God, God now it. I want to maybe spend the afternoon at the National Gallery. That's it. Um, I do have some appreciation for... There is a museum in Switzerland, which I suddenly cannot remember. So my sister and I visited it a couple of times when we were in... Uh, when she was studying in Freiburg. Mm-hmm. And it's a private museum... And mm-hmm. it's just outside of Basel. Um, okay, I'm just... I have to find this. Basel Museum. Uh, Baylor. The Baylor Museum. Ba- okay. Never so heard of this a, before, I think. Yeah, it's a private museum. And mm-hmm. it has a lot of um, fairly modern art. Okay. Uh, yeah, Museum of Modern and Contemporary Art. So I'm going to put this right. in, the, in the show notes as well. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's still definitely not an area of art that I'm super comfortable with, but mm-hmm. I do have a greater appreciation. Animal Crossing and Foundation Bale. Oh, no. 
During the current temporary closure, we have made one of our greatest artworks accessible online, the museum itself, via Nintendo Switch game Animal Crossing New Horizons players oh my God. can now wander the picturesque grounds or the outskirts <laughs> of Basel in Rien digitally, admire legendary classics of the Baylor collection, and discover the hidden treasure of the art museum. <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, it is... It is it's kind of great, actually. Animal Crossing. <laughs> anyway. Fantastic. Sorry. So, at the Baylor, right, they have... I mean, they have a permanent collection and they have a rota- fairly good rotating um, mm-hmm. temporary exhibition, although obviously now it's closed. Um, and I think part of their regular collection is they have a selection of Yves Klein paintings. Mm-hmm. And that I found really interesting because it's a canvas of just blue. But that shade of blue... <sighs> is now known as Yves Klein Blue. Mm-hmm. And let me pull it up. Or, or um, IKB for short. Yves right. Klein Blue. And it's a very... Oh, International Klein Blue. Right, it's okay. It's a very striking shade of blue. Right? And it basically amounts to... Yves Klein just liked this shade so much, he painted entire canvases huh. blue. Um, yeah, and... Do I have an explanation for why I like it? I don't. I just, I mean, I really like blue as a color. Oh, bloody right? hell. Yeah. And I mean, that that shade that appears on the Wikipedia page, that is a really dull version of IKB. Right. Right. If you scroll down to the, to the third image, that's mm-hmm. closer to what you see in an IKB painting. Right. Holy shit. Eddie Redmayne, although he is colorblind, wrote his thesis Mm -hmm. on IKB, which he can vividly see when he studied history of art at Cambridge. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so I still am not into Rothko. No, I'm very much not into Rothko. Yeah. But having seen a solid color painting that I really like, (laughs) <laughs> I'm willing to accept <laughs> that there is some potential merit and value. Yeah, is still still not for me. <clears throat> okay. Yeah. Oh God, I really miss museums. Yeah. I I you know I mean one of the things I'm I'm trying to plan now is how I'm going to return to the US and obviously mm-hmm. I'm not going to take the most direct route because okay. I'm going to try and you know visit as many museums on the way as possible. And you right. know, I mean, every time I pass through New York City, I always have to visit the M and H as a yeah. as a as an as as a mark of respect. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> Do you have a timeline for them. returning? By the way, I have no idea. I'll probably return sometime in August or probably early August, late July. Right. Depends on the vaccination schedule for which we are still not familiar with. We yeah. don't really know any details of yet. But yeah. Anyway, we've been talking for nearly two hours. <laughs> It's it's museums. I haven't even I haven't even talked about what I did the last week, which uh, is also museum related. I skinned it, an imperial pigeon. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> How long did it take you to? Uh, I'm not done yet. The pigeon. Oh no. Okay, so I started the pigeon. I started working on the pigeon uh, on Tuesday, right? Uh-huh. Tuesday afternoon, to be fair. So I finished a, a parrot in the morning. And then I started on the pigeon in the afternoon, thinking, you know, because, okay, uh, usually what happens is when you, you have to thaw the birds out uh, overnight, okay. right? And so you want to start on the smaller ones, so it's because those thaw out faster. Right. 
you know, the, the bigger ones you can save for the afternoon. So I try to do two birds per day, even though I think that's a bit slow. Um, so I saved the pigeon for the afternoon and I, you know, I thought, okay, here we go. Pigeon, let's, let's do this. Open it up. Fat just spilling out everywhere. It took me the uh-huh. whole afternoon to just remove the internal body mass from the pigeon. Uh-huh. And then it took me literally the whole of Thursday, not even like just the afternoon, the whole of Thursday from 10 a.m. to about 6 p.m. with a maybe do half you, hour lunch break in between. Do you want to clarify why you are removing the fat from pigeons? Yes. Okay. No, not just pigeons, but um, <clears throat> when we skin birds, when you skin, mm-hmm. when you prepare a, a, a animal skin, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Basically, the principle of this, you know, whether it's a study skin for for scientific work or taxidermy, you want to take out anything that will rot mm-hmm. or anything that will degrade the quality of the skin. Okay. Right? And so that entails removing all of the flesh as much as possible. A little bit of flesh left behind, you can you can get away with it, but you want to get rid of the, the larger tracts of flesh. Mm-hmm. Um, but you also want to be getting rid of fat because fat goes rancid. Yeah. Right, and it renders down over time, uh, and it attracts pests because when it breaks down, it breaks down into esters, okay, and that generates smells, right? That you know will attract insects. Um, it also then uh, you know, all these pigments that are, are stored in fat, yellow pigments and orange pigments, they stain the skin as well, right? And so they hasten the uh, they they basically reduce the shelf life of a museum skin. Uh, museum right. skins these days. You know, with not really modern preservation techniques, but modern storage techniques can last about 300 to 500 years. That's impressive. But, um, okay. The presence of fat could potentially uh, 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 reduce that that uh, shelf life of, of a museum skin. So the, the it, it is important to, to basically, when you are skinning a bird, uh, get rid of as much fat as you can. Obviously, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and and it's impossible to get rid of all the fat, but you want to be as judicious as possible when removing fat. And so birds store their fat in a few places. Now, the the thing is, you know, not all birds are fat, right? The ones that are fattest are the the ducks. Mm-hmm, yeah. Ducks are just s- slimy with fat. It's ri- <laughs> ridiculous. That's but, why they're tasty. Yes, it's exactly why we eat ducks and, and geese. Yep. But the, the 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 upside is that ducks are very thick skin, so <laughs> okay, you, they can yep. take a bit of abuse. Uh, right. They can take some abuse from the preparator uh, without falling apart. Okay. Now, pigeons, on the other hand, have some of the thinnest skins I've ever encountered. Pigeons are notorious amongst museum preparators for having extremely thin skin. And not in the, you know, the, the insult your mother kind of way, but in the very physical sense of um, their skin is tissue paper thin, but not just... Okay, although to be fair, I think that's a bit of a, a, a mischaracterization. The skin mm-hmm. is thin... Right by objective mm-hmm. standards, but what's even more uh, annoying is that the the base of their feathers is often attached to the meat or okay. to bone. So when you right, are right, right. skinning the bird, you're basically separating the skin from the flesh. Yes. Yeah. yeah. If you're not careful, and you you know you 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 push your finger or whatever you know your your forceps in the wrong way, right? You might end up pulling the feather through the skin the other way right, out. Right, right, right. And you might damage right. entire tracts of the, of, the, of the skin uh, because you didn't sever the membranes properly. 
Right. right. And of course, the thinness of the skin means that if I, you know, push my, my, my forceps in the wrong way, I might just rip a hole through the skin. <laughs> mm, um, good. And so, imperial pigeons are big, they're, you know, huge pigeons. These pigeons are famous for being island hoppers. They jump from island, they fly from right. island to island in the Pacific, in the South Pacific, in, you know, in the Andamans, in the Anambas Islands, in the Nicobar Islands. These are, you know, chunky birds, enormous birds. Um, and, and they are, I mean, they're, they're well regarded for having slightly thicker skins than your average pigeon, which is a bit of a sigh of relief. But the problem is that the reason why their skin is a bit more resilient is because it is entirely sheathed in a layer of fat. Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And so the, f- the fat makes, you know, separating the skin from the flesh challenging because it's extremely slimy. So mm-hmm. you're going to need a lot of, um, we use desiccants to, to re, you know, remove the slime. So some people use sawdust. I use cornmeal. Uh, okay. Unfortunately, I just switched to a finer cornmeal, which doesn't make it easier. I switched mm-hmm. to white cornmeal instead of yellow cornmeal because it's less oily, but still. Um, right. And so, yeah, you know, a lot of that is just, and a lot of that fat is trapped in small little cells between the feather tracks. Or mm-hmm. within the feather tracks. So removing that fat is difficult because you can't just remove it as one sheet. You have to remove it in small sections. Mm. So that was why it took me from 10 to 6, almost nonstop with a short half-hour break for lunch to degrease an entire pigeon. Mm. Right, cool. it, I, I'm, I'm still not done. So the bird has just... So I, I, I finished... Well, I, I, I wouldn't say I finished. I degreased a large chunk of the skin. Uh, oh, the, the other thing as well. Another place where birds store their fat is the tail. Um, <laughs> okay. The base of the tail. Not, not you know, because bird tails are mostly feathers. But the yeah, base yeah. of the tail is where the what we call the preen gland is, is stored. Okay. So the preen gland is a special gland that's found in birds where... Uh, it produces oils and waxes that uh, birds spread across their feathers to waterproof their feathers. Interesting. Okay. So when you um, <clears throat> ex- when when you know when when you remove the internal body cavity, you reach the tail and you turn the tail inside out, and you you, know, you snip at the cloaca, so you separate the body the body internal body mass from the skin. You'll be faced with the tail, right, with the the tail feathers. But these tail feathers at the base, where the feather shafts are, they're surrounded by these globules of fat and you know yeah fat and waxes and oils and it's all yellow in color and you have to basically get your forceps in and rip all the fat out and squeeze the fat out from all these sacks that hold fat and it's just extremely laborious and time consuming uh i am making an executive decision not to because we have a few other imperial pigeons left in the freezer I'm not going to touch those. I'm going to save those for when I teach people how to skin birds. And right. that will be their graduation present. <laughs> or their well, graduation then, challenge. I am, uh, I'm glad <laughs> I am a software developer. <laughs> okay. I think we, we really have to end off here. We'll wrap it up. Yes. Yeah. So the show notes for this episode can be found at monkeymind.xyz slash 019. And um, 018 is not out yet because I have to splice it together because the microphone also cut out in that episode. Yes, correct. So, yeah, whatever. Anyway, these two episodes will be out whenever they're out. (laughs) 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 And uh, we will see you whenever we see you. We are extremely disciplined at Monkey Mind.
Yes, we are. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye.